Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's Keeping It Simple webinar. I'm Larry Kim, an investment consultant here at Simplify, and joining Simplify's Harley Bassman and Mike Green today is Lynn Alden, an independent researcher and investment analyst. I'm super pumped up for this one. Um, if you have not visited her site, lynnalden.com, I highly encourage you to do so. You're going to find a treasure trove of articles on the economy and on investing topics there. Uh, and her insights have made her a highly sought after guest at industry conferences and on the podcast circuit. And we're lucky to have her today. Uh, especially uh, happy to have her today is Harley. Uh, as in our most recent few uh, Keeping It Simple webinars, we've had a parade of deflationistas. And so uh, maybe Lynn can give Harley a little bit of support. Uh, so if you have any questions, please use the Q&A function uh, of the webinar. Uh, and please remember that what you hear today is meant for educational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Mike. And of course, my screen just went blank. Um, welcome. So I know that everybody is really excited to welcome Lynn. I have had discussions with Lynn in the past. Harley is particularly excited. The internal Slack channel at Simplify has been all about, finally, finally, I get some backup in my inflation arguments. What Harley doesn't know is, is that Lynn has turned deflationist on us. Mike, 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 do, do you want to, usually I dress more formally. Do you want to know why I'm wearing this special shirt today? Because you wanted to look like a clown. We're having an inflation party and you weren't invited. Oh, that would explain why I am buying stuff at retail on clearance prices for the first time in two years. This is very exciting. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. While I tease Harley, we're actually great friends. And I, there's nothing I enjoy more than a spirited debate, as you know. So thank you for joining us. And I actually wanted to make sure that I gave you props because you were one of the first to come out with the general theme that this could very much look like a wartime economy coming out of the Great Depression and into the dynamics of the 1940s. I, I wanted to kind of get just a, a very quick introduction to what brought you to that thought process. What were you focused on that was leading you in that direction? Uh, so thanks for having me. My, my original uh, inspiration for that was Ray Dalio's long-term debt cycle thesis. Uh, which is basically the premise that you have these shorter term cycles, but then they they build up leverage in the system. So you don't you don't clear out each each one. You kind of build up to higher and higher debt levels, lower lower interest rates, uh, and then at the end of that cycle, you get a much bigger thing, generally currency devaluation. And so I recreated that data. I kind of I, I looked into the raw data going back 100 years, 150 years, recreated it, looked at it. You know, I, I looked at his charts, but then I also recreated those charts. I looked at it from other angles. Uh, and I said, what, what about this angle? What about this angle? And I, I kind of confirmed that, that, that I think that is one of the more helpful frameworks, uh, you know, that we're going into. And, and he, he's kind of used that comparison. That if you, if you chart it out the way he has and that, that, you know, my versions have, you see that the 2010s in many ways are very similar to the 30s with the, you know, the, the great financial crisis being rather similar to the 1929 crash and the aftermath. Uh, and then the 2020s were shaping up to look a lot like the 1940s. Uh, and that this was coming out to look like a, a wartime economy, which is generally a fiscal-driven inflation, uh, which is very different than the, than the more common 
you know, when people think of inflation, they think of the 70s, which is very bank lending driven. Uh, and so my view is that, you know, we have to go back further than that to find similar events. But of course, when you go back that far, there's all these, there's all these differences. So I keep using the phrase that, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So it's, it's a helpful period to be familiar with. Uh, and then people can, you know, once they're familiar with it, they can go out and then see what's different, what's the same, you know, go from there. And so if you were to think about what's kind of broadly going on in this framework, what, what is the, other than the historical analogy to this is how these cycles work, one of the things I've struggled with in the comparison to the 1930s has, has been the underlying structurally very different feature of continued widening wealth disparity, et cetera, that we did not see in the 1930s, for example, right? That, that the 1930s saw a significant decline in household debt that's similar to what we saw through the very beginning part of the 2010s, but that's largely reversed itself, particularly on a global basis. We look at Chinese households, et cetera, in particular, it's quite different. So when you think about that type of dynamic, is it just the, it, it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes framework, or is there something different that's going on this cycle that would suggest that other than, of course, it's seeming to follow a period of, you know, global, uh, relatively slow growth, certainly not what I would describe as a global depression in the 19, as we had in the 1930s, but what, what do you see as similar and distinct in this cycle that could lead you to, to think about it as this would be confirmation or I'm looking for something very, very different? So the similar parts is that first you have a private debt bubble collapse. So you build up a huge private debt bubble and then that collapses. Um, and then you have this kind of long period of stagnation, disinflation, uh, rising populism and discontent. Uh, and then that, you know, in, in Back then, it led into that, that that populism around the world is partly what contributed to the war happening. Uh, and here we have populism. We headed into you know the COVID lockdowns and the stimulus thereafter. And part of why there's there was so much stimulus uh, in this environment, you know, a, a pandemic aside, is how leveraged the system was. If this was a more resilient and less leveraged system, uh, probably less stimulus would have been applied to it. Um, whereas because we had we're in that kind of long-term debt cycle phase. I think that's why we got part of why we got such a gigantic impulse that, you know, when you're this leveraged recessions and disruptions become a lot more, they, they become a lot bigger than they otherwise would, would be um, where you get a difference. I mean, if you look back in the, in the thirties, a lot of it is a matter of degree, right? So back then you had an actual contraction of money supply. There was no FDIC insurance. Uh, they basically that bubble unwound a lot further than this one did. Um, and this one, they 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 kind of kept it alive. They basically created money to offset some of the the loan destruction that was occurring. So if you looked at broad money supply this time, M two, back in the 2008 crisis, you barely know anything big happened. If you're just looking at money supply, broad money supply, all the changes happened on you know base money, um, and you, you kind of had loan like basically contracting loans offset by minor stimulus, which, I mean, back then it was pretty big stimulus, but I mean, compared to what happened later, it was minor. Whereas back in the thirties, you actually had, you know, outright bank failures, you, you far, far more of them. Um, and you, that whole thing unwound so much further. So actually, you know, wealthy people lost quite a bit of money. And then when you went into the forties, the stimulus was also a little bit, um, uh, more conducive to the working middle class because as terrible as war was, 
most of the spending ends up actually being domestic. I mean, we think of wars as foreign things, and they are. I mean, they're, we're wasting equipment and lives overseas. But you know, you're building factories. You're you're paying soldiers when they come back. Uh, they didn't do. They didn't repeat what they did after World War One, which is basically give people a bus ticket and say thanks. They actually did the GI Bill. They they you know put people through technical school and college and helped with homes and things like that. Uh, so there's kind of a very bottom-up type of stimulus, effectively, at least for for, for those lucky enough to return uh, from the war. Whereas here, when we did stimulus, some of it was very bottom-up, things like stimulus checks and things like child care tax credits. But there are also things like PPP loans that turn into grants. They were corporate bailouts. Uh, and so this was kind of bailing out the whole stack rather than kind of bottom-up. It was kind of top-down and bottom-up. So you had at first, you had a K-shaped recovery. Now we're getting some some labor response as well. So I think overall, the policies were just less labor-friendly in this cycle, and that, that contributed to it. Um, Mike, you might want to pull up Lynn's slide number two to go uh, look at that flow. I mean, I'm going to pull up a couple of slides here. Um, give me and a then, second. Lynn, yeah. while he's doing that, the question I had is, is, are you comparing 1929 to 2008 or to like yesterday? Because truth be told, it looks a lot like more like what we're happening now is 2000 or 1929. And, and, and the wealth disparity is cresting right now or has just crested as opposed to in 08. So, I mean, I, I'd almost say we're going into a 1930s scenario of sorts, um, notwithstanding, I mean, I would I, I, say the, the war and all. Um, this is uh, you wanted to look at slide number eleven. Is that correct? No, our our, our slide number two. Uh, slide our, number two. Final version is, is she has a five-year rolling money supply. I think she was referring to that. Um, her broad money number. Lynn, is that what you want to use? Yeah, that one works for broad money. So I'm actually looking at this. I don't have the uh, the five-year okay. rolling broad money. Well, I don't see that. We'll, we'll figure it out. Let's go on. Yeah. So to answer your prior question, I, I find that there were a lot of similarities between the global financial crisis of 2008 and the 1929 crash, because that was essentially the, the private debt bubble unwinding. Um, whereas what we're seeing now, what is kind of the aftermath of that. Um, and so now we're in more of a public debt bubble, you could call it, uh, both in when you go overseas, you look in Japan and Europe, but also here in the United States. Uh, and it's also where we are in the commodity capex cycle. I mean, in the 1930s, you generally went through a long period of, you know, kind of commodity price stagnation because, of course, you had less demand for for most of those commodities. Um, and again, in the in the 2010s, especially the second half of them, we had generally weaker commodity prices because we had this period of oversupply and and less demand. Uh, whereas when you look at the charts now, the the, the sheer level of the death deficits we just had for the past two years, the amount of broad money supply increase, the 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 sheer amount that the base money went up starts to look a lot more like wartime financing. So that that's the kind of the comparison I made. But again, there are some differences. So wealth concentration, as you point out, is very high in this period. Um, and so we've not even begun to address some of the things that are causing all this rising populism. Well let's go let's go dial back for a second here. Michael, this is going to hurt a little bit. If you go back to our first kiss in May of last year, you had inflation at 5%, and you had the uh, June 23 euro at 99.5, so basically a, a half percent rate for LIBOR going out uh, to what will be next June. And then in December, when we had uh, Mr. Snyder on, we had a seven inflation rate and a 175 prediction of LIBOR. Uh, in Feb, when we had Lacey on, it's a 7.9% inflation rate and a 275 forward LIBOR. And now we're sitting, I guess, we, well, inflation tomorrow, last month was 8.3. Uh, so I guess it wasn't transitory, Mike, sorry. Um, and the forward euro is 
calling for a 365 rate next year. So the question is, where do you stand on all this? Have we peaked and we're coming down going into recession or are we on a higher plateau for a while? What's your thought, your grand thought about, about where we are? And also, uh, I'll give Mike a chance to answer like, where'd you go wrong um, in, 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 in your thoughts? But Lynn, you get to go first. So for me, uh, so there's still a couple of variables that I'm watching. My, my kind of expectation is some degree of a plateau here because some of the catalysts are reversing. I mean, obviously the, the amount of money creation is not happening. The fiscal stimulus isn't happening. Um, and so they're, they're, they're doing their best to try to rein in the demand side. Uh, but that's offset by the fact that I'm not seeing uh, any significant improvement really on the supply side, or at least in the energy side, right? So some of the, some of the, the retail type of things might be being worked out. But for example, we're still not seeing serious energy capex uh, and things like that. So I think that going forward, when they try to tighten monetary policy, when they pull back on fiscal stimulus, it's kind of like holding a, a beach ball underwater where, you know, I think that inflation is ready to keep coming up whenever they, you know, they 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 try to grow again, whenever they try to stimulate, whenever they're willing to put up with recessionary-like conditions, which I think we're in now, you know, maybe not an outright recession, but the fact that we have declining PMIs, we have consumer sentiment at recessionary levels, um, you know, we have decelerating economy, not not an outright recession, but but very sluggish growth. Um, and so I think that we're in this kind of plateauing phase and that that it comes down to how how much can financial markets hold on? Because if credit markets break or something gets messy in the system and they have to stop tightening, I think it's kind of like that beach ball coming back up. And of course, there's all these wild cards that can happen geopolitically that can impact the price of oil. But I don't see any sort of fundamental large supply coming online anytime soon. So your thought, and Mike, this might be a good time to pull, pull the, uh, the quiz up. You would think inflation will print what in January of next year for December's CPI? Um, what, what would your call be? And Mike, I guess you get to vote quietly. I'm not sure that- We, have, sure we have, have an untitled poll here um, that we're asking the question, headline CPI inflation for November of 22. So this would be the reason we're doing this is this is the December announcement. So we'll be able to have it by the end of the year. Uh, 2%, 4%, 6%, or 8% plus. And what is the expectation for the Fed funds rate in December 22, the FFZ2 contract? I'm going to go with. Don't, don't, don't answer out uh, loud yet. Let's wait till okay. we see the, uh, let's wait till we see the actual outputs. See if those like hosts we, don't vote at the bottom. Right? Yeah. It, there's a, there's a, a duplicate of question number three. You see, host, host not voting is, is there because there's no zero available for mice, so that's why you know. <laughs> okay, so the expectation of 6% uh, between, between basically 4 and 8% captures almost everything for the November. So there's some expectation of a retreat, but still what I think we would all describe as elevated inflation. And then the Fed funds rate expectation, it looks like is... The majority is between two and three percent. So basically, the markets. This would suggest that the markets largely have this correct, according to our our poll participants. Well, there's a limit to how how high how high it can go. Let's say go seventy five basis point hikes. There's a limit to how much they can get it to, even with fifties all the way out. So, well, they've got they've got five meetings left, right? So you know, if they were to go fifty basis points each, we could very easily get it north of three percent. So, so Mike, what what happened between a year ago and now that that 
we both, I, I, truth be told also, I won't say I expected inflation up at eight, just, just to be clear. Um, uh, what happened? So from my standpoint, one, I think that there's this broader issue of this question of what is transitory and what does it actually mean, right? And so when I referred to it as transitory, I actually would argue that we're pretty close to on target, although it's been higher at the start of this year than I'd anticipated, and I'd largely point to the Ukraine war as being a critical issue there. But the, the, the bigger picture that I would, would emphasize is, is that we have largely seen a change in the purchasing patterns and supply disruptions explain the vast majority of the inflation that we're experiencing. We walked through this with autos, we've walked through this with housing, um, you know, the, the dynamics of how much contribution was actually made by monetary policy, I would argue is quite low. I, I would agree with Lynn, by the way, that the significant fiscal transfers were a critical catalyst and we should have expected higher inflation, which we got. What I find so perplexing now is why it's perceived that the solution is to actually raise interest rates and choke off demand rather than expand supply. Well, the government can't Lynn, expand supplies, why? What's that? The government can't expand supply. I mean, they of can't get- they can. that's what wartime. That's what wartime financing is all about, right? I mean, if I look at, if I look at the dynamics of the government's programs in World War II, for example, if I bring back the 1940s or the late 1930s, they created any number of companies and industries with guaranteed cost plus contracts to expand supply. Supply of airplanes, not supply of rubber or, 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 or nylon. Wait, say that again? Whatever. Um, no, but, but, but that's what happened, right? So they could very easily say, you know what, we're going to guarantee profits on oil wells if they wanted to. No, but the government was building things. They're building tanks and airplanes and jeeps. They weren't actually expanding the supply of rubber or the supply of nylon or other input goods, which that, that's the problem we have of now course, is input of goods. Of course they were. That's exactly what they did. They created Reynolds aluminum and Kaiser aluminum. They dramatically expanded bauxite imports. It takes a while to dig a mine. Anyways, um, Lynn, going back to your concept of, of uh, broad money, does that qualify as money printing? The way in my parlance, or 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 is it more just an asset swap that that, that Lacey or, or or Snyder would say? I consider it money printing, but I I, I separate a couple of different types. Uh, and so the the QE we saw over the past decade, I consider it money printing, but it, it has a limited transmission mechanism, right? So for example, the Federal Reserve increases their balance sheet. I don't get any any more money in my savings account or my checking account, for example. That could, but it does find its way into financial markets, right? So it, it gets in there, and I think it has a huge impact on financial assets, but not necessarily, you know, consumption. Uh, now, what I think really revved up the the quote unquote money printing was the the fiscal transfers combined with that QE, because QE is what helped enable it. Whenever you issue that money bonds in that short of period of time, it's hard for the private sector to absorb all that. So basically what you had was essentially in a, a period of MMT where they were doing large amounts of helicopter money, other types of stimulus giving out to people, actually boosting their their consumption ability by sending money to their bank accounts, you know, cutting their taxes, things like that, that they could go out and spend. And then where did the money come from? It wasn't drawn from the private sector anywhere. Uh, it was basically sold to the private sector, but then immediately bought up by the Federal Reserve with, with brand new base money creation. So you, you put money into the economy that you, you didn't draw from anywhere else in the economy. 
And so I think especially that combination was money printing. Uh, even earlier versions are money printing. It's just but just more concentrated. I mean, I, would, look, I, mean, I think it's direct money printing, but not direct to the consumer and the, to their wallet, the, the fiscal policy puts in their wallet. But um, Mike, I'm not sure if you could pull up the slide, I'm not sure what number you have. I have number 15, the uh, central bank assets versus the value of stocks and bonds. Um, I guess you can call that a, a pretty picture. I would call it a direct correlation or direct causation. I mean, the Fed, the Fed can create inflation if they want. It's just hard to create two or three. Usually you end up with one or you end up with 20. Um, it's, it's hard to go and, and, and land it just right. But I mean, I think the Fed, the central banks did create inflation. They wanted inflation. Inflation is a feature, not a bug. Because if you go, we have too much debt, you get rid of debt by you default or inflate, inflation slow motion default. And therefore, if you inflate you know, uh, GDP, inflate assets, you will shrink the GDP to debt ratio and that's, that's good. By the way, if we have a negative real rate, so if we have low interest rates but high inflation, that's a double goody. You collapse debt to GDP and it's a stimulus for the economy because people can borrow it at negative real rates, which is a, which is a, a public policy good. So I kind of think it all lines up. But to say the Fed did not create inflation, I think it's totally bogus. So just out of curiosity, if, if I take this chart, you know, I would say that this is largely a two-axis prime chart. Um, how, how would you explain something like what happened in 2015? I, I look, I, 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 I'm not going to zig and zag. I, I, think, I think it's kind of like comparing the the move index to the VIX index, they both go in the same direction, like horses went that away, boss. Um, but you, but you, they, 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 they zig and zag around. Um, I mean, the, the Fed could never actually put the money per se into the economy. They had to go and kind of pile it up someplace and then hope it bled on in. Um, fiscal is a direct transfer, but away from there, you have, you know, asset substitution. You know, people lose their treasuries, they have to buy mortgages. They lose their mortgages, they have to go and buy corporates. They lose some of the corporates, they have to go buy uh, uh, junk bonds. They lose that, they have to go and buy equities. They keep searching for a higher return, a higher yield, and more risk. The Fed's idea was to push people out of safe into risk, uh, which is exactly what you have to do when, when you know, animal spirits are, are crushed in 08, 09, and 10. So, um, uh, it, it wasn't a direct drive, but it was a it was a it was a push, and and that's where where I think Lynn is I, her, her chart seemed to be very, very supportive of that. I, I agree with that, and and also to answer Mike's question, those those downward moves where the red line up uh, you know temporarily goes down, those happen to all be declining PMI environments. Um, so I think that's the, kind of the common denominator that when you have a, a serious you know economic deceleration, uh, this does clearly decouple for periods of time. Um, but yeah, I think the general trend uh, is that by creating so much new base money, and you know, people call it an asset swap, but before there's an asset swap, it's created out of thin air. So you create out of thin air, then you swap it for something, and and like Carly says, it then starts taking assets off the market and pushing the market elsewhere. And so so I do agree with that. And the only thing you know, you're inflationary for financial assets, and then the question is, you know, is it is it inflationary for things like oil? Not necessarily if it's not getting to consumers, but then especially when you then you add fiscal stimulus to the to the mix and you're monetizing fiscal stimulus, you're getting it directly to the consumers that can go out and and do things that are more oil intensive or more consumption intensive. So you can certainly get that inflation in different areas when you just literally create money out of nothing. 
Yeah, I, so 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 I, I think what I would push back on. So first of all, I actually agree with what Lynn is saying that when you do fiscal policy, you will get inflation. The question is, is it sustainable? Right? Are we going to continue to see elevated high levels of inflation? And that's where I that's where I struggle a little bit for two reasons. One is, you know, when Harley talks about negative real rates. First, we're actually sitting on positive real rates now, if we use an expectations channel going forward. And so one of the key questions, of course, would be, how are you interpreting things like tips? Now, we know how Harley is interpreting them. Oh, wait. Harley, do you want to give a real-time comment? And then, Lynn, you want to jump in? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> the the tip, tip, tips are, 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 are a plaything uh, for, the, for, 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 for the market. The, the Fed owns, you know, a, a, a quarter or a third of the market. For a year and a half, they were buying more than were being produced. It's a very small technical market that no one actually actually looks at. And, you know, so I don't even care what tips are. <laughs> What's your take on that, Lynn? One, one thing I look at is oil futures, right? So if you look at oil futures out to 2025, they're something like $75 compared yep. to where they are today. So so the I think there are large swaths of the market that are expecting that a lot of this is transitory. And that's that's where I would I would I would take the other side of that bet. And so for example, you know, asking I have no idea what oil is gonna do over the next six months. For example, at the at these current prices, uh, sentiment's kind of high, and and we'll see. You know, there's all sorts of variables that can affect that. But I am bullish on those longer dated oil futures. I, I would expect oil to be higher in 2025 than the market is currently pricing, and I think that 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 affects things like the tips market. That affects inflation expectations. I mean, that that, that kind of trickles down and everything else. Uh, and so I do think that on average, the market is, you know, that these inflation expectations are somewhat real. I, I wouldn't exclusively look at the tips market because they can be influenced in all sorts of ways. But I think when you when you look at multiple things together, the market is kind of pricing in this, the, the idea that it is pretty transitory. And that that's what I would take the other side of. Michael, uh, Lynn, I've, I've been being mean to Mike and I, I'll stop now because he's my very good friend. Um, so I'll, I'll pick on you now. Mike, if, if you're possible, you can go, I, I think I'm not sure, I mean, slide eight, the signal to noise one where we have the um, green versus uh, uh, orange line. So what this is here, that's it, there we go. So I will always say it's never different this time and it's not. Um, and the best predictor of, of a recession is the curve. And um, when the curve inverts, you get the inflation 14, 16 months later. Um, now, the official reading is the three-month T-bill versus the 10-year Treasury. We on Wall Street cheat a lot, and we'll use twos, tens, or maybe we'll use other stuff. In this chart here, the spot surface is very steep. So there's no recession here at all. The orange line is the forward, using forward rates, uh, which is inverted. And so the question is, Lynn, who's right? spot market, the forward market, are we, get, are we getting a recession in, I mean, next June? I mean, actually everything lines up. The forwards here and the June Euro dollar all line up with saying that's the recession hits. Mike might say we're in one already. Um, where do you stand on this thing? 
So it's a good question. I've been watching a number of these curves trying to figure out this, this you know, the, trying to answer that same question. One thing I would point out is, I mean, going back the, you know, the, the 25 to 30 years of this chart, um, this doesn't include a significant inflationary period. Uh, and so I think that some of these back tests that only go back 20 years, 25 years can, you know, give us kind of false readings. Uh, my expectation is that um, the spot thir uh, three month versus 10 year is going to start falling uh, pretty rapidly because I think I, you know, my expectation is the Fed's going to be raising rates pretty sharply and that the 10 year is not going to be going up at, at nearly that same rate. And so that I think we're going to get a flattening in that sense. So I, I think that the, you know, the 10 2 is front running that, uh, you know, more quickly and that I think that the 10 3 is going to, going to follow. Um, that, that, if we that's, don't get the, yeah. if, if, if we, if we get the, green line to flip, the spot curve to flip in three, four, five months from now, and we get the signal, well, then it's still a year away before the recession, which means that the euro curve is kind of way off. Euros are peaking or bottoming in June, July of next year. And if you follow, as you described it, we're not going to get the recession until 2024. So is there a disconnect there? Potentially, but if you look at, so for example, if you look at like the 1980 period or so, you had that double dip recession. If you have these like rapid things next to each other, that that whole rule about like you know it happens a year after the inversion, that that might not play out for that particular instance. I mean the the range if you go back to I think the the studies like the the seven recessions that have occurred after those ten three yield curve inversions, there's been a pretty big range for how quickly that can turn into a recession. One of them I think was as short as a couple months. Other ones are eighteen months or more. And so I I think there is a pretty big variance, especially because this one was so. Accelerated. I mean, you know, for example, if you had asked people, we lost this many jobs, how long is it going to take to get those jobs back? People say, well, typically it takes this many years. And of course, that was that was very compressed. We got we got most of those jobs back pretty quickly. It was kind of a weird situation, you know, the whole COVID lockdown thing and then the abnormally large fiscal stimulus. And so because this whole cycle was compacted, I wouldn't be surprised if the if the down cycle is somewhat compacted as well. Uh, I, I still think there's a, a lot to, that remains unknown. I mean, it partly depends on how adamant the Fed's going to be in terms of keeping trying to tighten and, you know, assuming that there's that there's no fiscal support anywhere in sight, which I think especially becomes more probable once you get past the midterms. Uh, so and your, so with- The station call is when, in theory? I, I think I think by next year. I think by by 2023. I mean, by, by some indicators. I mean, the funny thing is, Things can get revised later. So, for example, we had um, a, a, a negative Q1 uh, GDP print. Uh, it's looking pretty low here for quarter two. Uh, you know, by some estimates, you could say that we're already kind of in early phases of recession that won't be called for for eight months or x x number of months. Uh, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be shocked if that if we look back and and laugh and say you know, it turns out we're as we're having this conversation, we're in some sort of recession. But uh, you know, I think it's it's just different because the nominal figures are so high that that can mask some of what's happening on the real side. So, for example, uh, retail spending, the the nominal numbers are still decent, but when we look at actual volumes, they're down because people can buy less with their dollar. Uh, uh, consumer sentiment levels are already down at recessionary levels, um, and so and we're just starting to see that show up in the labor force because that that's generally a lagging indicator. So the PMI is already down. The PMIs are not contractory yet, but they're but they're decelerating. Um, so they don't look recessionary yet, but they look weakening. Labor market doesn't look recessionary yet, but it looks like it's just 
curving up to some extent. So I, I would I would say by 2023, early 2023, I wouldn't be surprised if we're in a recession, but I, I wouldn't even be shocked if we're if we're not already in the really early stages of one. Mike, I think that's, I, I think that's a valid interpretation and, and would also highlight the dynamics of we're beginning to see the employment gains on net. Total employment has basically been stagnant for several months. Again, as Lynn points out, there's likely to be revisions to that data. Um, we've seen multiple downward revisions in a row now. That tends to be one of the characteristics that people look for. And I would also highlight how difficult the data is this time around, right? Because we have this extraordinary impulse that occurred both to the downside and to the upside, it's really hard to understand how are we supposed to seasonally adjust data, for example? How are we supposed to interpret the recovery as rapidly as it's occurred, for example, in the labor force? You know, it, if, if anything, I would suggest that what feels like very elevated levels of inflation, once we start to factor in things like the supply chain disruptions that we've experienced, it, you know, or the extraordinarily low levels of inventory that we had for a product like single family homes, where there was a very fundamental outward shift in the demand utility function associated with having a single family home because you were no longer in a city, right? You no longer had, you needed to have a house that had an office in it, for example. That raises the value of single family housing quite dramatically. Um, and I'm not surprised by the dynamics that played out. The question is, how does it recover from here? What does it behave like going forward? And that's where I, I find that, and, and again, it goes back to the arguments that I was making a year ago, which is, if you look forward from now, I just don't see the impulses barring another stimulus response. And if anything, as Lynn is pointing out, the likelihood of Republicans taking back seats, et cetera, we're right back to the no action government, far from the MMT dynamics that we were celebrating 12 months ago. I, I agree. I think that the, my outlook is less for the demand side and more for the supply side. Because I think that, so for example, in the 70s, even when you had recessions, and, and again, there are a lot of differences from the 70s, the type, where the money supply growth is coming from and all that. But one similarity is that in the 70s, domestic oil production in the U.S. peaked in 1970. It started entering a plateau and then a downtrend. We became more reliant on the Middle East and then all the geopolitics there. Um, so we, we had you know serious supply side problems combined with the fact that money supply was going up back then, mainly for demographics reasons. Um, and so... Here, it's not that I expect the demand side to be particularly strong. It's that I don't see any significant relief coming on the energy side. Um, uh, and so I think that some of the realignments around purchasing, as you pointed out, could be easing. Um, but I do think that the energy side is still completely unaddressed. We still don't see any, any sort of uptick in CapEx. We see they're, they're still uh, drawing down drilled but uncompleted wells. So they're basically picking out the easy uh, ways to, to get more supply online. They're not actually doing the long-term projects to get new supply online, uh, especially with oil futures priced that low. There's not a lot of incentive. Um, and so I, I, I think that it's, it's you know, back in the 70s, even when you had recessions in the 70s, you still had inflationary recessions. And so I think that, you know, we're used to recessions and, and economic decelerations being disinflationary over the past years and decades. And I think that in this in this dynamic, we're not necessarily going to get that, that we can have a slowdown in demand, even a recession in demand, and yet still, you know, 
holding energy prices down is like holding a beach ball underwater where maybe maybe demand destruction tapers it off for a period of time but then as soon as you have a resumption in growth either due to random stimulus or something it's ready to pop back up and so i don't see any sort of relief on the on the supply side at least in the energy space which which trickles into almost everything else Lynn, so you've been overweight in your model portfolios uh, in energy oil, as far as I can tell. That's worked out very well. Congratulations. Without mentioning tickers, can't do that. You still like this sector, it sounds like, because you think if, we, if the world prices up the forward curve and forwards are, you know, well under 100, and you think it's going to be rising up, that would intend to imply that there's continued, you know, value in that sector. Is that true? Yeah, I would say that current oil oil stock prices in general are not reflecting they're they're not reflecting how high oil could go, you know, three, four, five years out. Um, and so I, you know, while I would be cautious around near-term oil itself, um, I, I still like the oil equities. Now they have come pretty far pretty fast. So I always get nervous when sentiment is in my favor. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised after we get past the summer to to see, you know you know, a couple quarters of stagnation, but I think looking back years from now, they're still reasonably attractive. And I've also been focusing on the pipelines. If someone wants, you know, exposure to the sector, but they're, they're less clear about energy prices. Um, I think that the, the pipelines have been so bombed out basically, you know, for years, they were kind of doing Ponzi-nomics. They were issuing debt and equity kind of in this constant growth uh, that all blew up in, in, you know, 2014, 2015, uh, and then a couple stragglers that didn't blow up then blew up in 2020. Only the really strong ones got through that whole period, and they've shifted now. You know, they're not even really issuing equity anymore. They're they're more self-funding. They grew their distributions slower than you know their their cash flows growing, and so they purposely have lower payout ratios so they can funnel more of their own cash into their growth projects. So they don't have to constantly issue equity. And some of them are actually buying back units, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of an MLP structure. Uh, but that that's the that's the market that we're in now. And and so given the valuations, I think are still low in that sector. Uh, I I actually like them compared to many alternatives. And so I think that that's one way to play it as well. I agree. Um... Strictly back to my wheelhouse of interest rates. Now, looking from the poll, um, people seem to think we're going to have a five handle on inflation come the end of the year. That's good enough for me. Um, it's coming down, but we're not seeing two two percent uh, for quite a while. Um, and let's just say we are in a recession, or we're nothing right now. Let's say we're zero for real growth. That gives me a five percent nominal. Mike, I have a chart up there about this. Historically, we've seen some kind of relationship between nominal GDP which by the way, despite last quarter's negative one and change you know, headline number, the real number was positive 6.3, which is the nominal GDP growth. Um, we've seen a, a relationship between cash 10 years and nominal GDP, which makes sense fundamentally because like the cost of capital and the growth should be kind of aligned with a small profit. That would kind of mean that we're about five nominal GDP in December. Where's that put 10 years at? Still at three? So let's share that slide quickly. And I guess the que the question I would ask you, Harley, is based on this, what would you, you know, if I look back, for example, at the 1960s, where we saw the first wrinkles of inflation begin to emerge in that cycle, we didn't see a meaningful response from tens. No, right? we didn't. I, 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 I mean, yeah. 
So why would we expect it this time? Well, I mean, I would argue last time that people couldn't believe their eyes when they saw the infl inflation numbers um, that high and took a while for it to bleed into the system, which it did slowly. Um, and I'd say right now it's, it's kind of, you know, the same thing. We really kind of can't process an, an, an eight or even a six handle. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think I, I'm a Chicago guy. I kind of believe there's a fundamental to this. It's once again, it's a squiggly chart that can be made to look like anything, but it kind of makes sense to me. And I'm just wondering about, you know, how do we have high nominal GDPs, high inflation, um, because, but high nominal GDP and not have higher rates. And, and I'm trying to process how the curve is inverting at 275. I mean, yield curves invert before the recession. They invert usually at the second to last Fed hike. We, we start inverting here like before the first hike. This is like kind of crazy town. Something's wrong here. I mean, I, I think, and I can't figure out which one it is. Um, the, the, the bond market's the wrong price or you know, the curve's the wrong price. Um, or, or maybe it's the Fed's heavy hand. I mean, I have proposed that you've seen mortgages uh, blow out 75 basis points versus treasuries in the last six months. Um, I'd say maybe the mortgage market's the right price and treasuries the wrong price have to catch back up to them. But I, 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 I have a hard time processing a five or six handle on nominal GDP and a, and a three handle on tens. Something, something doesn't work for me. Well, so so I would say there's two separate components to it, right? One is is that the nominal GDP is a backwards-looking measure, right? Whereas a ten-year rate is the next ten years, and so th this can very easily be resolved by simply saying real growth is going to be much slower than you expect, and nominal growth is going to be, you know, within expectations of kind of two to three percent. I mean, if you want to go and just you know say history is history and it's never different this time. We're supposed to say that you're right, Mike, that we're in a recession right now. The curve's already priced it in. Inflation's gonna, gonna I mean, uh, the, the, the rising oil prices and home prices will slam the economy down. And um, equities have already had their, their pullback and time to buy them. I mean, I mean that is so, what the market, so, so the numbers this are saying. Actually, this, this is where I, I, I actually would interpret that quite differently. I think what the market has priced is a broadly sensible platform that says, if we don't screw things up too badly, this is the expected path. The problem, I would argue, is exactly what you're articulating, which is that you do have a heavy-handed Fed that did a poor job of building expectations for what the likely path was last year, and is now politically forced into a situation where they're hiking interest rates and are going to cause all sorts of economic chaos. I mean, the, the, the underlying dynamics of the number of companies whose capacity could come offline because they are effectively zombified, right? The dynamics of rising prices in online, sh online shopping, for example, is only going to be exacerbated if we actually end up seeing commercial real estate liquidated, right? So many of the retailers that we're seeing that have massively overstocked their inventory levels and people can point to things like retail inventories and say they don't seem that elevated, but that's tied to one very specific sector, which is the, the automotive sector, right? Where we're functionally constrained in terms of our production capability and prices have been pushed in a, to a level that allows demand destruction to occur. Um, every other sector of retail is showing explosive growth in inventories. All right, and that, where do you that could very easily reverse itself. 
and, and then some if we have much higher interest rates that prevent the serviceability of that debt. Like, I think that what we're actually looking at is a political environment. And Lynn, I'd be interested in your take on this. Harley referred earlier to the idea that perhaps what we went through in the 19, in the 2010s was much more like what we saw in the 2020s, or 1920s, I'm sorry. And what we're facing today, because we forestalled the cleaning of the system, is some variant of Joe Manchin saying, liquidate stocks, liquidate labor, et cetera. Let's be sensible in our household operations. I think that's one of those things that can work for periods of time, but I think that when debt across the board is this high relative to, relative to economic output that supports that debt, I think that they're going to quickly, you know, if you start to get massive liquidations of that debt uh, and and basically just broad solvency crisis, I think politician tunes are going to change pretty quickly. Um, one of my theses is that I think that the we are going to eventually see more fiscal stimulus, but it's going to be more targeted than the prior rounds. I think we could see what's happening in Europe where you get energy stimulus, for example. Uh, and we already see that in some states where you know you take away uh, some of the taxes on gasoline to try to make it more affordable. Um, I, I think you're going to see things like that going forward where you get rising discontent uh, to the extent that a stagflation environment continues. If energy, if new energy supply is not coming online significantly, and if they're trying to engineer demand destruction, that's going to manifest in a weaker labor market, a weaker, a weaker consumer market, uh, rising voter discontent, rising donor discontent, uh, and then I, I think that reverses itself. Now that, of course, it, the path dependency matters. And so until we see that, until we see the whites of that eyes, basically, I, I think we're, you know, it makes sense to be more defensive here, but defensive in my view means preparing for the possibility of recession, but not necessarily one that's as disinflationary as the prior ones are. I, I think that we, you know, we could see, a, I would expect to see a lower number than 8%, um, but I, I'm with Harley that it's not going to come down quickly mainly because of what we're seeing on the energy side and what we're seeing on some of these areas. Uh, but you can have certain pockets that are that are very disinflationary due to over, you know, high high inventory and, and overproduction on on some categories. Now when you think about something like tips, for example, you mentioned this idea of the oil forwards. You know, you, you don't actually hedge a five year inflation uh, tip with a five year oil forward, right? You wouldn't actually use that component to hedge that you're using the much nearer term and nobody actively trades tips on an arbitrage basis on that, on that manner. If I look at those forwards in oil, right? And I, and I would agree with you that the kind of five years out, we're looking at $75 a barrel. I, I don't expect that either, right? But if we were to see a 50% increase in that, that would have the inflation component of oil effectively be zero. Right. Nobody's hedging their oil out that far, except for a very few number of producers. And even there, the balance sheet intensity is not really there. That's, that's part of the underlying dynamic. There's just less demand and less supply out there. So when you when you think about that, like, what's wrong with a 50% increase? Do you, do you think it's significantly higher than that? Do you think we're looking at $200 oil in five years? I think when we look out five years, those numbers are realistic, those higher numbers, 200. I, I wouldn't be surprised if not only are those futures end up being too low, that even the current price is too low. Uh, now, the path to get there could be, you know, we go up to 120, we come back to 100, we go up to 150, we come back down to 
110. We shoot up to 180. I don't, I don't know what the path is going to be. It's not going to be a straight line. Um, but I do think that we are entering the realm of, of you know, a, a serious possibility of a crisis of just not enough energy when you have Europe, China, Japan, U.S. fighting over. Um, and over time, you can also get some of these things arbitrage. So right now, European natural gas prices are way higher. Natural gas is a less fungible market than oil because it, you know the, the shipping costs of that are just much more complex. And so it, there, there's some arbitrage, but there's less capacity to arbitrage that than with oil that is, is far more fungible. Um, over time, the, the, to the extent that those spreads in prices persist at that level, you're going to see more and more North American natural gas want to go to Europe to take advantage of that, more export capacity be built. Um, and so that can raise the prices on Americans as well. Um, and so I, I think across, you know, not just oil, but but natural gas and just all the, all the kind of the whole energy complex, I, I think it's probably going to be higher than people expect this decade, even though, again, the next six to 12 months, I have, I have no clue what oil is going to do. But I think I think those the longer you look out, I, I would take the over on pretty much any estimate. Lynn, so and I hate politics uh, on the show, but who's the bigger oil bull, Biden or Putin? You mean in terms? Uh, so, who's going to who, who's take who's going to take oil up? Biden by by limiting supply, or Putin by fighting a war? I mean, so I, I think I mean they're both huge variables. I mean, it, you know, if you would have asked me my prediction before the war, I probably would have whatever numbers I just said would be a little bit lower before we add add an actual kinetic war to the mix. So that that's certainly a variable. I think in the long run that gets arbitrage because they build pipelines to China. China takes more of that. I don't think we're going to see a ton of Russian oil leave the market in the very long term, but it does add friction and risk premium to this whole thing. Um, I, I think the bigger story is the lack of, you know, part of it's part of it's geological. I mean, I think OPEC is just kind of getting somewhat tapped out in their in their overall ability to ramp up production. I think shale has, you know, gotten the eighty percent of the easy gains over the past decade. I think you know squeaking out further new supply uh, per year is harder. So I think a lot of it, I think the biggest bull in the room is kind of just just physical, just physics. Um, but then, yeah, when we add ESG, um, Biden policies, things like that, um, that, that is super bullish. And then Europe's, you know, it, it's kind of like this ideology where you're getting the price spikes, but you're just not getting that, that response right away. And I think it's, that's got to persist until voters change right i think it's, it's it's one of those things people don't change their viewpoints on a dime and so i think it's going to be a problem both in the, in europe and the united states for for years um so i think it's 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 multiple aspects there well i'm asking because if martians came down and took putin and carried him away so he's totally out of the picture i mean i think the market's pricing in oil down 40 points the next day right I, I that's why that's one of the reasons i say next six 12 months no idea because there's headlines that could move it like you said massively um, if if that gets resolved, I think that buys us time. I think that 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 takes out a significant problem for six months, twelve months. Uh, but it doesn't really change the fact that shale's not really, you know, ramping up. OPEC is, you know, usually OPEC's problem is trying to keep uh, the the countries from overproducing. Whereas in this environment, a lot of them have not even been meeting their quotas, despite the fact that oil prices is high. Um, and so I, I I think that just the 
in multiple areas of the world, there's just not a lot of capex coming online, and that there are just you know significant limitations to how much oil can be produced in a period of time. And no one wants to invest in like these seven to ten year offshore projects. Just, we're not seeing a lot of that right now. I think that could change eventually if you get high prices for long enough. Uh, that can change. We already see some countries changing their policies, like India. Just you know, they come out and say energy security is now a bigger focus for us, right? So, so countries that have less margin for flexibility, generally lower GDP per capita, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be just more like practical in terms of changing their outlook on things. I, I think it just takes more time for for some of the developed markets to have that that change. Yeah, so, Mike, does her view change yours on inflation? Because if we're going to oil 200, not only does, you know, the gas at the pump go up, but the input price of, of energy is, you know, flows on through. I mean, if she's right, or do you, I mean, if you think she's right, would that change your view of the world? Not meaningfully, unfortunately, right? And for a couple of reasons. One, um, I don't see the demand being as inelastic over the time period that Lynn is referring to. So part of the dynamic that we've experienced has been an extraordinary recovery in the global economy in a very short period of time. It's actually remarkable how similar the oil price increases, obviously correcting for the negative oil prices in May of 2020. Um, it's remarkable how similar this looks to the recovery from 2008 to 2011, for example. Um, and I, I would argue that we're running into the same underlying dynamic. The 2003 to 2008 cycle was largely driven by China's globalization and its emergence as the manufacturing sector for the world that required a ton of oil, it required a ton of gasoline, it required a ton of diesel, it required a ton of commodity investment per capita. In a world in which global population is not growing in that way, when the participants in the global labor force are not changing in any meaningful framework, I struggle with the durability of that. And, and we also see, to Lynn's point, and this I actually totally agree with, if we end up seeing significant subsidies within developed markets, which we're starting to see in particular, then we will see those developed markets show show uh, higher inelasticity, effectively lower elasticity, reduction in demand versus high prices. And that's going to put it all onto the developing world, which is where I'm really concerned about the dynamics, right? Because that is where we're seeing a significant restructuring of economies. They're being forced to by the dynamics that Lynn is hitting on. Oil is an inconvenience in most of the developed world. As, as painful as that is to acknowledge, like it pisses me off to pay $100 to fill up my gas tank, but it doesn't change my behavior that dramatically. It does start to change marginal behavior pretty dramatically for most Americans because we're talking about a fairly significant increase and I've shared things like the increase in food and gas prices. But if I look at the developing world, which is where, where all of the incremental growth in demand has been happening for the past 20 years, we really are seeing the risks that that is cut off very, very hard. I mean, people forget that the average Chinese college graduate makes somewhere in the neighborhood of $700 a month, right? This is not a country that can handle significantly higher energy prices. And with India, it's even less. Their, their oil per capita consumption is less, their GDP per capita is less. Uh, you know, same thing for large portions of Africa. There's there's very large swaths of the world where, and it's not it's not just the energy costs. It's also how that trickles into food costs. 
Oh, and I, I totally agree. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why I've been highlighting places. I mean, you know, I don't have a Malawi fetish, right? But I keep highlighting Malawi as a great example. And Malawi just devalued their currency by 25%. That's just another way of saying we, as, as Malawians, we no longer get to buy stuff from the rest of the world. Lynn, uh, what have we not asked you so far? What, 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 what freeform topic you want to hit on before we close? I think that covers most things. I think the one of the biggest questions is what's going to happen with fiscal, uh, I, because to the extent that they stay on course with no fiscal, Fed tightening, and what the what the public's you know kind of ability to stand a recession is, um, then I think you could see a prolonged period of disinflation from a high level. It takes time to get down, right? So I I, I basically very much sympathize with the disinflationary view here after being in the inflationary camp for a while. Um, where I think the breaking points are is, you know, basically if those foreign sectors are not growing, especially with the dollar so strong, it means they're not buying treasuries. It's, it's a pretty strong dynamic that we see. Uh, it also means that credit markets are not going to be functioning very well. And then so it, it's kind of like at what point does the Fed you know, even if inflation is still running kind of high, what what point does the Fed get to a part where they, you know, job losses are ticking up and they have to kind of pause their tightening schedule to fight, despite the fact that inflation is still above their threshold? And, you know, what point do you get a, a pain point in Congress to do something to try to address these, these energy concerns? Because they're already doing, you know, they're already drawing down the strategic petroleum reserve. You know, what happens when that gets low enough that they don't want to go any lower? You know, there are kind of these these decision points that we have to look past and think that that's where there's a fork in the road where you can have another couple quarters of disinflation or you can get a pretty serious inflation spike and an oil price spike. And, you know, as Mike pointed out, a lot of these developing countries stressed. So I think I think it's less about predicting what's going to happen and more about knowing what are the what are the key variables to watch to know what what which which direction on the road the probability is tilting to at any given time. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway is to know what to look for about when to change views on things versus, you know, exactly what order and what time frame things are going to play out. Okay. So Thank the, you. The, the, um, before we go on, Larry, I just wanted to highlight one other, one other quick thing. I, you know, we saw this with Japan in the 1990s where we continually heard the dynamics of interest rates are too low, they're artificially manipulated, inflation is just around the corner. We saw this happen over and over again, where the central bank effectively stepped in prematurely. And now, of course, we look at Japan and we say, oh, you know, obviously they're idiots, right? They're, they're not hiking interest rate. Um, and clearly that's a sign that it's chaos in the rest of the world. You know, I put this tweet out earlier today on Twitter, and I just, I'm gonna lay it out there one more time um, for this audience and just, just highlight this dynamic, right? Because what we're really doing with central bankers around the world is repeating the mistake of Trichet. You don't try to kill demand with interest rates. Interest rates kills investment. It doesn't kill demand. And so if anything, what we're actually talking about doing, this is where I would argue that I'm moving towards Lynn's camp, is terrible policy is likely to result in both increased hysteresis, i.e. people going, never going back to work in the way that we hope that they do, and the economy moving to a lower potential functioning level. We need to do the exact opposite. When we talk about wartime footing, I think Lynn is 100% correct. 
and Harley, uh, you know, I'm not going to say unsurprisingly, but your analysis of what wartime footing actually means is just wrong. It is incumbent upon policymakers at this stage to clear the path for real investment, whether that is additional investments in oil and gas, both onshore and offshore, and providing the guarantees that say, not only are we not going to go after you in a, in, in a um, you know, Green New Deal um, prosecutorial fashion, we're actually going to take the L for the taxpayer and pay for increased production. We'd rather run the risk that we have much lower prices going forward. That's the direction that we need to move to if we actually want to talk about going to wartime footing. And, and then I would completely agree with Lynn, not only will we see an inflationary condition because we're expanding supply, um, which creates its own demand. This goes to the Anais Anaji type dynamic that people have heard me talk with uh, Dr. Anaji about, but the, the dynamics of failing to do that and instead trying to hammer the consumer back into their shell I just think we're repeating the dynamics of Japan all over again. Well, Glenn, I want to thank you very much. Although it looks like the two of us together could not, could not budge Mike off Team Trans. So here we have it. Well, thanks for having me anyway. Okay. Unfortunately, that's about all the time we have left for today. So I just want to thank again our special guest, Lynn Alden. Please check her out at lynnalden.com. And of course, Mike and Harley. Uh, hope you enjoyed this, and please join us again next month uh, where our special guest will be Jim Bianco. So with that, have a great night, everyone. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for information informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.